and the way he behaves in the world. The talk about tradition and honor and respect crops up among organized criminals of all stripes. Russian pornographers, Colombian drug lords, Italian arms dealers. Meanwhile, they all behave badly. Crime reporter George Anastasia's description of Philadelphia mobster Nicky Scarfo's mob during the early 80s has a familiar ring to it. Life inside the Scarfo organization was a three-dimensional chess game. Plots and intrigue unfolded on several different levels, and collisions occurred on various planes. So for months during the Rochebene War, protagonists would socialize at weddings and funerals. If they happened to be in the same restaurant, they'd greet each other warmly and buy each other a round of drinks. Even the gangsters get tired of it. Anastasia quotes Scarfo associate Nick Carmamandi. You heard of the double cross? In this business, you gotta watch for the triple cross. You gotta always be alert. There's so much jealousy. Guys always trying to set you up, put you in traps, trying to get you killed. There was so much viciousness in this thing. Captains are greedy, just like everybody else, writes Joe Pistone, the FBI agent who spent six years as an undercover wise guy under the name Donnie Brasco. So you never told anybody the whole story with money. If you made $100,000 on a score, you might tell your captain you came out with 80000 That was the standard. It goes that way right up the line. That's why nobody totally trusts anybody. And the penalty for such lies? You might get whacked for $200 if it wasn't your first time skimming, or if the other guys needed to be shown a lesson, or if your captain or boss just felt like having you whacked. So the practice of skimming from your own family was common, and so was the result of getting whacked. What motivates people to live that way? Henry Hill grew up during the late 50s in the Brownsville, East New York section of Brooklyn. His neighborhood was full of mobsters, as he explains in Wise Guy, the 1985 book he wrote with Nicholas Pileggi. I used to watch them from my window, and I dreamed of being like them. To me, being a wise guy was better than being president of the United States. It meant power among people who had no power. It meant perks in a working-class neighborhood that had no privileges. To be a wise guy was to own the world. Here is mob boss and future hit victim Paul Castellano again, explaining his point of view to the two FBI agents who arrested him. We're not children here. The law is, how should I put it, a convenience. Or a convenience for some people and an inconvenience for other people. Like, take the law that says you can't go into someone else's house. I have a house, so hey, I like that law. The guy without a house, what's he think of it? Stay out in the rain, schnook. That's what the law means to him. That kind of talk is self-serving, but that doesn't mean there's no truth to it. Still. None of this explains how a value such as honor fits into a culture based on constant deception and casual brutality. Gangsters themselves seem confused about this, and no wonder. Their professional behavior is dishonorable by any definition that our broader culture endorses. A gangster who wishes to model himself on some idealized version of a Native American, loyal, proud, reverent toward life, is in a fix. What's he supposed to do the next time he has to set up a friend? The gangster who asks himself what Crazy Horse would do might turn down the job, in which case he's liable to get whacked himself. For gangsters like the Gattis or Castellano, who trace their corporate roots back to Sicily, the confusion derives in part from problems of translation. 
Pino Arlacchi created Italy's Direzione Investigativa Antimafia to fight organized crime in that country. His treatise on Sicily's mafiosi, Mafia Business, 1988, includes this passage. To behave as a mafioso was to behave honorably, honorevole. It was to conform, in other words, to certain rules of cunning, courage, and ferocity, of robbery and fraud. An honorable act is, in the last analysis, not much more than a successful act of aggression. In short, behavior described as honorevole is violent, deceitful, and successful, but entirely dishonorable by most standards. Contemporary mafiosi in this country have used another word, omerta, to describe a code that governs a mobster once he is formally inducted into the Cosa Nostra. This version of omerta essentially calls for the mafioso to keep his family's secrets. But the code of omerta in Sicily sanctioned a double moral standard with appalling aspects. Dealings with fellow mafiosi required tact and fine manners, education, courtesy, kindness, and persuasion by argument and without compulsion. But dealings with the common people and with one's enemies obeyed the opposite principle of false omerta, false kindness, false condescension, false courtesy, which are snares concealing death to unsuspecting troublemakers and to the wicked and contemptible. Arlacchi goes on to stress the sheer difficulty and brutality of life in Sicily during the first half of the last century. Even family life was based not on intimacy, but on subordination. The society into which the mafioso was born was a tragic and brutal world, sparing neither the weak nor the defenseless. Honor was connected less with justice than with domination and physical strength. In the carrying out of his day-to-day -day duties, the mafioso did not follow any abstract ideal of morality and justice. He sought honor and power, and in pursuit of his goals, he was quite ready to flout any established rule of conduct. When power was at stake, mafiosi had no hesitation in violating the most deep-rooted cultural and ethical norms. Much of the literature of organized crime comes from the criminals themselves, in accounts that surprisingly often strike a note of happiness, of low-rent dreams fulfilled. It doesn't last. Things go wrong, and that's when wise guys start trying to explain themselves in terms of the very notions that a mafioso must abandon to succeed. Contemporary ideas of honor and respect, guilt and innocence. They may start talking about Native Americans or telling FBI agents about their childhoods. They may make excuses. Listen to Sammy Gravano the Gambino family hitman who betrayed John Gotti Sr. to the FBI and more recently was found guilty of drug trafficking with his son, age 24. In Bensonhurst, that was it, becoming a made guy. It's all we kids ever talked about. I never saw the other side of it until I was in. And then it's too late and you just do your work. The gangsters and their victims often are one and the same. There's Paul Castellano his corpse sprawled on the sidewalk in front of Sparks. There's Gotti Sr., who arrived at the United States Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois, nine years ago to begin serving a life sentence. He took up residence in a six-by-eight-foot cell with a radio, a 12-inch black-and-white television, a single cot, a basin, and a toilet. He was to live in that space for 22 to 23 hours a day. There's Gravano, who went to see The Godfather when he was 27 years old, Years later, Gravano had this to say to Prosecutor John Gleason.
I walked out of the movie feeling so good. That was my life. My life was honor and respect. Now, years go by, and the only thing I can love about my life is the movie. A now defunct financial magazine 15 years ago asked me to write a story on mob influence in the stock market. Financial regulators gave me the names of a half dozen brokerage firms suspected of having some connection with organized crime. I called a few of the firms, introducing myself as a journalist interested in writing about their investment banking operations. I arranged a meeting with the managers of a firm in New Jersey. That done, I hung up and spent the rest of the day in a state of mounting anxiety. I felt guilty about lying to my new acquaintances. I'd never before set out to harm anyone. I began to imagine how angry they would be when my story ran. I didn't have any real enemies in the world. The idea that I might be making some dangerous ones scared me more than I like to admit, even now. I also disliked the prospect of telling lies to these people, and I didn't care if it was in a good cause. My worries about lying also circled back around to fear. If I told lies, I somehow lost my ability to defend myself from even the worst people. Who would believe me? The truth is that I didn't want to believe that such bad guys existed, let alone help anyone prove it. I called the magazine editor and told him I couldn't finish the piece. And now? I know that mafiosi and other gangsters exist, and so I think about why and what it means. It occurs to me that gangsters can't defend themselves. They have lied too often, to themselves, to each other, to the rest of us. They can only show us what can happen when we lie and hide, when we lose our capacity to acknowledge and live with the way things are. At some point, a real gangster cuts the ties that bind him to the rest of us and to the planet, and then gravity doesn't apply. He's spiraling off into the black, as alone as anyone can ever be. I'm afraid of those people, and they make me sad. I don't think if you're paying attention you can have the fear without the sorrow. And I'm interested. I read the stories. I want to know more. Not because I think I can save them, but maybe because I'm interested in doing what I can to save myself. Clint Willis A mob killer known to readers as Joey wrote this 1973 autobiography with the help of David Fisher, born 1946. Like Nicholas Pileggi's Wise Guy, which came 12 years later, Killer offers a convincing and instructive look at gangster methods and motives. Here's Joey's seminar on how to administer a hit. From Killer, by Joey with David Fisher. I've dabbled in just about every area of crime, but my specialty, the thing I do best, is kill people. I am to mob rubouts what Leonard Bernstein is to music. I am one of the most feared killers in the United States today. I'm proud of that reputation. I've worked long hours and in dangerous places to earn it. I don't make that claim braggingly, but truthfully. I have sent 38 deserving men to their early graves. I can remember each man that I hit. I can give you the order, 
the details, even the weather on the day I made the hit. Number 18, for example, was a gambler who was discovered informing on the mob. He had been arrested quietly and made a deal in order to keep himself out of a jackpot. Certain things began to kick back, and some people checked and found out my man was the source, so he had to go. I caught him in a small bar, and I just walked in and blasted him with a thirty-eight. It was dark, and I was wearing a dark shirt and dark pants, and when I started shooting, everybody scrambled for cover. I remember him. I remember them all. You never really forget. But it doesn't bother me, not one bit. This is my job. It is my business. I shoot people and that's it. I never think in terms of morality, although that may be hard for a lot of people to believe. I know the difference between right and wrong. By most standards of morality, what I do would be considered wrong. But this doesn't bother me. I also know the difference between eating and starving, between having a new pair of shoes and stuffing newspapers in an old pair to keep my feet from freezing. Believe me, I know. So I don't worry about it. Because I have the ability to pull the trigger, I can do what I like to do, go where I want to go, Live comfortably, eat well, be what I want to be. I have no second thoughts, no recriminations. I don't even think about it because if I did, and if I was an emotional person, I could not live with it. It would destroy me. So I do my job like a guy lays brick, a guy tends bar, a guy cuts hair. At home, I'm not really that much different from your average bricklayer, bartender, or barber. I take out the garbage four nights a week, worry about my wife when she's out alone at night, clean the outside windows every few months, and complain about those ridiculously high telephone bills. Believe it or not, I'm a human being. I laugh at funny jokes, I love children around the house, and I can spend hours playing with my mutt. Only one thing, I never cry during sad movies. I've only cried for one person in my life, my first wife. The day I found out she had been killed, I cried. Then I changed.